There was a man talking with a collector of rare books. That collector had a a strong affinity for finding old volumes, kind of like this one. He liked holding them in his hand and feeling the worn cover on the book. and He even liked opening them up and seeing the ragged edges of the pages that exist on a lot of old books like this one. This happens to be an old Bible. A number of people through the years have given me copies of old Bibles that they have found in different places, and I, I really appreciate those. Part of what that collector enjoyed about holding the old books is the same thing that I enjoy about holding this and other old Bibles. It's, it's what it does to your imagination. It causes your imagination to just run wild as you wonder about whose hands these books have been in. Who's held this Bible besides me? What kind of a path has it traveled? Whether that's a, a Bible or a book, what kind of path has it traveled? As my imagination runs wild on this one, and this is probably the favorite one that people have given me, I I like to think that this belonged to a circuit rider preacher in the Old West, and this Bible rattled around in the saddlebags on his horse, and when he'd get to a church, he'd pull it out, and he'd open it up, and he'd preach from it. How he could see the letters, I have no idea, but he'd open it up, and he would preach from this Bible, and then close it back up, and put it back in the saddlebags and move on to the next place. Well, as this man was talking with that collector, he said, I found an old Bible in my grandpa's attic. The book collector said, oh, really, where is it? He said, oh, I threw it away. It, it was just worn out and beat up and wasn't worth much of anything at all, so I just threw it away. He said, besides, some guy named Gutenberg had actually published it. The collector of books said, Gutenberg, you threw that away? And the man said, well, yeah, it was torn up and beat up. And the the book collector said, do you realize that a a copy of the Gutenberg Bible just sold at auction for over $2 million? That's the oldest copy of the Bible anybody could hold in their hands. $2 million. The man said, well, mine would have only brought a a few dollars. It was so worn out and the pages were so torn up. And he said, and along with that, some idiot named Martin Luther had written all over the pages. So he just, just got rid of it. Just got rid of it. Now that's kind of a silly illustration. It really is. And, and it, probably resonates with a few of you, maybe not everybody, but there's a a point behind the illustration. And that, that point is really simple. Sometimes we take things of great value and diminish them greatly. We take things that are are worth a lot and we forget about that value. We forget about that worth. We might even just toss them aside or even throw them away. The point is really made better by the man that I got that story from than I can possibly do myself. So let me just show you how he sums this up. Take a look. Sometimes we treat precious things as worthless things. We see treasures as clutter because we're ignorant of their true value. We do that even with words. Words that were once to us like elixir, the stuff of everlasting youth, are now to us like soda pop, cheap common, leeching nourishment from our bones. Words that were once to us as jewels, rare, costly, 
are now to us like stones, common and expendable. We toss them about carelessly. We trample them, kick them, and leave them where they lie. There are many words we do that with. Love, hope, salvation, holiness. It comes from Mark Buchanan. He's one of my favorite authors. Well, I would add to that list that Buchanan puts there at the end, love, hope, salvation, holiness. I would add to that light. Light. It's a word that, that we tend to not value the way we should, even though it is of great worth to us today. We devalue it because the sun comes up every morning. It did today and we know that it will tomorrow. So we don't think that much about the rising of the sun. And in the culture that we live in, if we walk into a dark room, we know that all we have to do is find a switch. Flip that switch and the lights will come on. We don't necessarily understand the process that happens in order for that to take place, but we trust that it will. As soon as we grab that switch and throw it, then it's going to bring light. We just accept it. There are other parts of the world where that is not a truth that they live by, but for us, light is common. It's ordinary. It's something we take for granted. Maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't. Because light is something that is talked about through Scripture in such a way that it should capture our attention, particularly this time of year. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you brought a Bible with you, open to the Gospel of John, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll give you just a second to get there. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John's way of talking about Jesus. The Word is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was, listen to this, the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's that word light. It's powerful the way it's used here to help us understand some deep, deep things. I want to give you a, a little bit of insight into literature and the literary world. How you begin a story is of the utmost importance. If you want to be a good storyteller, you have to think a lot about the beginning of the story. It has the ability to communicate things that you know and how deeply you believe them. How you tell the story matters a lot. John knew that. The Apostle John did. So he tells a story that helps us know some things that he knows and helps us understand how deeply he believes them. If you were to study the Apostle John, here's what you would discover. A lot of scholars would tell you that he was Jesus' best friend during Jesus' earthly ministry. John himself would describe himself as the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of the twelve, he was the only one that was present at the cross, at the crucifixion. He knew Jesus. He had walked with him. He had traveled with him. He had journeyed with him. He knew some things. And he believed those. 
And he wrote them down so that we would have access to them. John's Gospel is for many people the front door into salvation. If they've never read the Bible before and they pick it up for the very first time, more than likely somebody has told them, don't start with the book of Genesis. Start reading in the Gospel of John because John's a good storyteller. And John has a way of capturing the Gospel that makes people want more. Just like this, the way he starts this book, the way he starts his book, makes you want to read more. He has your interest right from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then he goes on to say, and I love this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Oh, you want to read more. You want to know more of what this author has to say. But here's the thing about John. John's not just telling his own story. He's not just telling something that he knows and believes strongly in. He's also telling Jesus' story. And I love the way he begins it. I love the way John tells the Christmas story. Have you ever really studied it? It's found in verse 9. Just skip down a few verses with us. This is John's telling of the Christmas story. If you want to write that in the margin of your Bible, you can do that. Here it is. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's it. That's the way John tells the story of Christmas. Listen to it one more time. In fact, we'll, we'll put it up here on the screen. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John chapter 1, verse 9. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. Thirteen words. That's all it takes the Apostle John to tell the Christmas story. Thirteen words. That's it. But doesn't that make you want to know more about Jesus? Doesn't that pique your interest? That's the way he captures us from the very beginning to make us want to know more. This use of the word light is so intriguing. It is so curious when you just stop and think about it, why would John use a word like that? Maybe, just maybe, it's because the people that lived during the time of John knew what darkness was. They knew it very well. And I'm not just talking about physical darkness, the kind of darkness we get when the lights are turned out. I'm talking about spiritual darkness. They knew spiritual darkness. Because you see, they were living during a time of silence from God. They were born into a period of silence from God, the tail end of that period. been 400 years since anybody had heard anything from the Lord. From Malachi to Matthew, it's called the intertestamental period. It's 400 years long. And God was silent during that time. He was silent. In the silence of the Lord, a, a darkness began to cover the earth. It was a palpable darkness, a spiritual darkness. If you've never studied those 400 years, you need to know that things were happening during that period in human history that we have not seen since. There was a man named Antiochus IV that was a ruler over Palestine and many other lands that was doing such abominable things in the temple of God that no one wanted to look upon him. And there were actually some people, one of them carried a name, Judas the Hammer. Judas said, we won't abide that. 
And Judas rose up against it along with the Maccabee clan and said, we're going to put an end to what's going on in here. And they rose up against it because it was an abomination to God, to their God. And they weren't going to have it. The celebration of Hanukkah that mirrors Christmas is attached to the darkness of that time. Eight candles are lit during the celebration of Hanukkah to bring light into darkness. For those of you that have looked upon spiritual darkness, I have, you know that it is worse than physical darkness. And that spiritual darkness was covering the entire earth. The entire earth. Everyone was touched by it. Everyone was losing their sight. They were losing their vision. And personally, I believe if it had been allowed to go on much longer, they would have crossed a tipping point that they could not have come back from. I believe that because of passages like this in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. I want you to know this, hear this today. The coming of Jesus was perfect. The timing of Jesus' birth was perfect. It was in the fullness of time, right when it needed to be. And if He hadn't come, the darkness would have overcome everyone. But Jesus came at just the right time. And the light began to shine. And the darkness didn't overcome the light. And the light began to permeate everything. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. What an amazing, amazing truth that John understood. And he wrote about it. He wrote about it. Thirteen words to tell us about light coming back into darkness. Studying that this week has left me in kind of a unique place where I've just wondered, what would happen if Jesus hadn't come back? What would that darkness have looked like as it encircled the entire earth? What would have happened to those that were living here if they were left in that darkness? So I went looking for the effects of total darkness on humanity. My curiosity was asked and answered in one article. I want to share it with you today. It's, it's a little bit long, but you hang with me because, man, this is good. It'll, uh, <laughs> it'll open your eyes to some things. Now, this article comes from a series called What Would Happen If? by Steve Russo. The title of this one is Realize, Realize Dark Skies. And the premise is summed up this way. What would happen if you were stuck in the dark forever? Now listen to this. Each week we look at something that you could do but probably never would and take it to its logical end point. This week, what would happen if you were trapped in unending darkness? It's easy to take light for granted. We wake up every morning and it greets us through the windows. We come home from work and summons it with the flick of a switch. The dull glow of one last glance at your phone bathes you even as you try to fall asleep. Lights signal progress and opportunity. We're drawn to bright lights in big cities even as they drown out the light from much, much larger celestial bodies burning and exploding far, far away. 
So many of us concern ourselves with an excess of light in our lives. But what about the opposite? What might happen if you were to plunge yourself into total unending darkness and never leave? We spoke with Dr. Carl Seatek, an optometrist and professor of optometry at Pacific University to shed some light on this dark hypothetical. Initially, everything is fine. Your mind might be racing, struggling to pick up the slightest bit of sensory information. There might be bumps or you, that you may not have heard or brushes against your skin you may or may not have felt, but that's all in your mind. It takes a little while for your eyes to physically adjust. Your eyes rely on two overlapping systems for visual perception. As you might already know, within your retina sit a number of rods and cones. Our current understanding of our eye is that these rods and cones work in tandem to create a composite image that we all know and love as our vision. The cones are there to help us see color and detail. This is known as your photopic vision. The rods are responsible for our sensitivity to light, which we call our scotopic vision. An easy way to think about this is that our photopic vision works well in the daytime and our scotopic vision becomes useful only when it gets dark out a day vision and a night vision, if you will. As such, when the lights go out, your photopic vision is the first to fully adjust, though fully adjust is a bit of a misnomer. After about 7 to 12 minutes, your photopic vision is maxed out in terms of the amount of color and detail you could possibly see in complete and utter darkness. Your scotopic vision takes a little longer, fully maxing out its sensitivity in around 45 minutes to an hour. Even now, although your eyes are fully cranked, without any light, you can't see anything. This might seem disorienting at first, since, you've always, or since you're always used to seeing something. But the real terror will only manifest itself hours, maybe even days later. Your body relies on light to determine when it should release melatonin, and thus when you should go to sleep. There is evidence that our eyes contain certain photoreceptors that mediate this process but do not contribute to visual image perception, says CTEC. Very much like the pixels in a digital camera that read light level and adjust the aperture and shutter speed but do not contribute to the final picture itself. Without light, your brain doesn't know when, if at all, to release that sweet, sweet melatonin. So, somewhat counterintuitively, sitting in the dark will eventually leave you sleep-deprived. You'll just be sitting there, staring into absolute darkness, wishing you could fall asleep, but can't. There's no telling what sort of mental toll this will take on you, but physiologically speaking, your eyes are fine. They might be cranked to maximum sensitivity, but they aren't straining or degrading. They're just sitting in your head, trying to take in the light that doesn't exist. In fact, if you were to be suddenly thrust back into the light, things would go back to normal in a matter of moments. Granted, your eyes are still set to maximum sensitivity, so any abrupt changes in light might feel harsh. In all cases, when you turn on a light, it will initially seem very bright, says Dr. Seatek. But light adaptation should take only a few seconds in a normal person, regardless of the brightness of the light. No doubt you've experienced it to a lesser degree before. After a few seconds, it would be like nothing ever happened at all. Darkness thrusts you into an incomprehensible sea of fear and isolation. It's easy to see things that aren't there, believe things that seemed impossible moments before. You might believe your eyes are straining so hard that you'll never see again. 
But take comfort in the fact that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how interminable it may seem, eventually the light will return and your eyes will be there to see it, at least until the light fades again. See how my curiosity was asked and answered in just that one article? But it really happened with one statement from Dr. Seatech. This is it. Darkness thrust you into an incomprehensible sea of fear and isolation. 400 years of silence from God, darkness that begins to surround the entire earth, that's what they were left with. Fear and isolation. Study that 400-year period. You'll see both. Fear and isolation. So John, in his first letter near the end of the Bible, writes this. I love this. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's talking about Jesus, that light that was coming. When the light of Jesus began to shine, perfect love was poured out on the earth, and fear began to dissipate. Isolation began to dissipate and connection happened through Christ. The light was shining. It's as if those people during that 400-year intertestamental period needed somebody like Dr. Seatech to make statements along these lines for them. But take comfort in the fact that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how interminable it may seem, eventually the light will return. And the light returned. Jesus came. And when Jesus came, the darkness began to lift. And it has been lifting ever since, illuminating things for every believer, for every Christian. John wanted us to understand the significance of this because it was something he knew and something he believed deeply in. So he took 13 words to help us understand how Jesus turned the entire tide of darkness into light. But he used some other really intriguing statements in the telling of his story. Did you catch it? Let's go back to John chapter 1, verse 1 again. Listen close to what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Are you curious about a statement that he used? Is there one in there that sounds really familiar to you? One like this? In the beginning? In the beginning. Does that sound familiar to you? If you've read the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible, maybe you started in Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, the very first chapter of the Bible, the very first words of the Bible look just like this. In the beginning. And John now, in the telling of his story that leads the way to his telling of the Christmas story, uses the exact same terminology, in the beginning. Let's go back to the first place that it's used. I want you to see something super cool. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 1. Genesis is an easy book to find. First book of the Bible. Open the cover. You're there. Chapter 1, verse 1. Very easy to find. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, listen, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be light. And there was light. John uses that exact same idea in John chapter 1. In the beginning, the Word was there. Jesus was there. And now light is coming for the second time. For the second time. Well, if we wonder about the arching nature of that type of Bible study that leads us from Genesis 1 to John chapter 1, we have to wonder why the same terminology is used in the beginning. Why that in the beginning? Well, here's the way I would boil it down. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God's first act of creation was to create light so that we could all see the created. And by seeing the created, we could know who God was. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says that God has revealed Himself through all of creation so that all men are without excuse. And God knew that we needed light to see it. So His very first act of creation was light so that we could see it. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then all of creation followed right after that, and we've been able to see it ever since because there was light. Do you remember, Dr. Tech? You need light to see. So God said, I'm going to give light so that they'll be able to see and they'll be able to see all that I've created. That was the first creation. In the new creation, when a person becomes a Christian, God lets light shine in our lives. It's so that we can see not who God is in all of creation, but how much He loves us through His Son. So Jesus is the light. In the first creation, the necessity of light was that we might know God. And in the new creation, the necessity of light is that we might understand the depth of His love. And so John says, light has come into the world. Light is coming. Light is coming. In the midst of this horrible darkness, light is coming. Wow. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Oh, it gets even better. I hope you're intrigued. First, you have to know that John's not the only one that writes this way. There are other places in Scripture where we see the the same type of thing. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's deep teaching. Well, that's wonderful teaching that directs us back to this. Jesus is light. Jesus is light. And in Him there is no fear. In Him there is no isolation. Things get illuminated for us that we might understand the great depths of God's love for us. took John 13 words to tell that part of the Christmas story. And for those of us that have entered into a walk with the Lord, the light shines that we might understand it. There are other places in Scripture, like in the Gospel of Luke, 
where Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, prophesies over his son. And in that prophecy, he brings out some things about Jesus. Listen to this. This is Luke 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you, will be go, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who are in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. I hope you paid close attention to verse 79. If you didn't, it's on the screen. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's Zechariah, powered by the Holy Spirit, telling us about the coming Messiah. That's Jesus, the light of the world. The light of the world. Come so that we don't have to worry about fear or death, that we might have peace and that we might have it, are you ready for this, forever. That we might have it forever. Because Jesus is the light of the world, we will have it forever. Now do you remember this, this arching Bible study we're going through, what started in Genesis chapter 1 and, and it makes this humongous leap to John chapter 1? Well, let's make another gigantic arch and you're going to see something way cool. This is arched Bible study where you see a, a common thread, something that exists throughout all of Scripture, Old Testament to New. Well, we're about to make another arch, another leap. Leap with me from John chapter 1 to Revelation 21. The end of the Bible. Now, doesn't that just ring true for you? From beginning to end and right in the center, leap, leap. There's interconnectedness. But listen to this. Verse 22. And I saw no temple. By the way, you've got to know who's writing this. This is John. This is John the same guy who wrote to us about light in his gospel and in his letter. Now listen to what he writes in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The light of Jesus Christ will never, it will never, the light of Jesus Christ will never, not ever, go out. 
And the time will come when the sun doesn't have to rise anymore because we will sit in the glory of the Lord. And the light of Jesus, the Lamb, will become the lamp that we need to guide all of our steps. And we will have no need of, of sun, moon, or stars because the glory of Jesus Christ will govern everything. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. When John in John chapter 1 verse 9 took those 13 words and told us that light was coming into the world, he was telling us that a light was coming into the world that will never go out. And that light will illuminate for every believer the depth of God's love for us. That's the light. In the beginning, it was shining. There was a period of darkness. And then it lit up the world. He lit up the world. That's Jesus. We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at this idea of light and who He is and what that brings to our life. And we're going to culminate, excuse me, we're going to culminate that study on Christmas Eve in two different ways. At 10 o'clock in the morning on Christmas Eve, we're going to have one service, just one service. And we are really encouraging everyone to join us for that. That service is going to be not quite the culmination, but it's still going to be a part of what we're talking about. And it's going to be completely different than what's going to happen at 4 and 5.30 in our candlelight Christmas Eve services where we will put a bow on and wrap together this whole study of let there be light. Candlelight services. Did you catch that? Let there be light. So we want you to come in the morning and the evening. They're different services. We want you to come for both. And oh, by the way, just a little value-added thing. On Christmas Eve morning at 9 o'clock, our one service is at 10. At 9 o'clock, myself and Deanie and John, we're going to be serving fresh Krispy Kreme donuts in the Welcome Center. We have somebody that's headed to Kalispell very early in the morning on Christmas Eve to pick up dozens and dozens and dozens of donuts. We ask him if his truck is big enough to carry back all of the donuts. And we will have fresh Krispy Kreme donuts in the Welcome Center. And I'm talking about donuts that just not long ago came underneath that icing machine. Do you know what I'm talking about at Krispy Kreme? They just came under that. Fresh Krispy Kreme donuts. So we want you to come and, and just fellowship with us and eat some donuts, drink some coffee, drink some juice, and join us at 10 o'clock in the morning as we continue to explore the depth of what God meant when he said, let there be light. And there was light. And there was light. And that light is the life of men. And the darkness has not overcome it. Why don't you stand and let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us light in the beginning so that we could see you. But thank you for the new creation where you give us the light of your Son that becomes life for us and our means of victory over the darkness becomes for us everything that we need. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Because in Him we get to see how much you love us. Lord, this morning I'm praying for those that need to see that. I'm praying that the light of your Son will shine brightly for them and in them and all around them until eventually it shines through them. I know that we have others here today that darkness seems to be closing in on them for whatever reason. I pray that 
the light of your son will push it back. I pray they'll find what they need. In Jesus' name, amen.